This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello friends and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where we wine and dine the great and the good, the hilarious and the magnificent and record the chat along the way. This week I'm joined by not only a booker winner but by the first black woman and the first black person to win it in its entire 50 year history. Uh, my guest has received many awards and honours including being named one of 100 Great Black Britons in 2020 as well as writing eight books. She is also Professor of Creative Writing at Brunel University London. In this episode we discuss extremely dominating partners, piano smashing, oh my days, and slang. It is, of course, Bernadine Evaristo. It was only when I won the booker that suddenly I didn't mind telling everybody about my life. I was suddenly just talking about my age, I was talking about my, you know, my sexuality, which had changed and so on, and I just didn't care. I really didn't care who knew. So you join me for this episode of Out to Lunch on Upper James Street, just off Golden Square in London, Soho. I've come to a restaurant called Bob Bob Rickard. Uh, the menu is sort of 70s comfort food and classics with a bit of Russian-inflected luxury. There's a bit of caviar and blinis going on here. But the really striking thing is the interior. It looks like the inside of an Edwardian train carriage, which is fantastic. And more to the point, it has a button which says press for champagne. Well, Bernadine Evaristo has an awful lot to celebrate, so I think a champagne button is exactly what we need. Should we go inside? Hi. Hello. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Welcome. Hello, thank you. Have a seat. Yes, I will indeed. It was announced yesterday you got a Gold Nielsen Award. I did. For passing 500,000 mm. sales for Golden mm. Rather. It's actually over a million sales. For the record, <laughs> Golden Rather by Bernadine Every says sold over a million yes. copies. That's quite, that's, that's quite a lot of copies of books. It is, yeah. This is Jeremiah. Hi. Hello. He's responded to the pressing of the press for champagne button. <laughs> We should have those in our houses, shouldn't we? I, well, I, I think it has to be said, when Bob Bob Rickard opened, there's a press for champagne button by every single table. Wow. And I think almost all of us ghastly restaurant critics probably gave at least two paragraphs to the presence of a press for champagne button. <laughs> well, it's a I think that every restaurant, in fact, every table should have. It's a very clever thing, isn't it, to do? It is. Because champagne's very expensive. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then they can guarantee that they'll shift a bit of it. I, I have a feeling that you don't always get the Dom Perignon Vintage 2010. Ooh, ooh. So I know it's very early, but can we clink glasses? Okay. And you, you have many things to celebrate thank with you, this book, but congratulations. You. Thank you. You say at one point that um, you've never had therapy. No. 
Um, Are you going to start? <laughs> the interview process is, isn't it? Well, it can be. Yeah. It can be. But I'm just interested in this because, from my perspective of white middle class, you know, privilege, and I got loads of it. You can yeah, smell but, my privilege. But, but East End roots, mate. <laughs> Yeah, and I've really ridden that horse into the sunset as far as it can go. Um, it, it looks to me like, you know, growing up in some poverty, experiencing a lot of racism, being dismissed by teachers, having a tough time all round. Um, in modern parlance, there'd be lots to talk about if you find the right psychotherapist. And, it, and you've chosen not to. Is that literally because, as a writer, you wanted to protect all those demons and channel them or just because you thought I'm not that person? I think, you know, I actually think until I wrote this book, until I won the booker, I was a very private person, you know, and it was only when I won the booker that suddenly I didn't mind telling everybody about my life or even even in the build up, build up to it when, when Girl, Woman, Other was published. I was suddenly I was talking about my age, I was talking about my, you know, my sexuality, which had changed and so on. And I just didn't care. I really didn't care who knew. Um, but up to that point, I was a private person and I just didn't like the idea of being in a situation where I am telling people intimate stuff about my life and they are in a position of power over me, possibly. So that's how you would have viewed a therapeutic relationship? I think I might have done. I don't know, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking on my feet here. But I think... Excellent. <laughs> I think that is part of it. I just didn't like that power dynamic. But also, surely it must have suggested that you weren't in day-to-day -day distress. I might have been in my life at various points, but not to the point where I felt I needed to go and get outside help. But actually, in, in, in my 30s, I went and did a load of personal development courses. So in a sense, perhaps that was my therapy, where you looked at your life and then kind of started to look at how you can make a better life for yourself. Well, in an act of terrible segue, we are going to eat off plates today. We have a, a menu in front of you, if you want to have a look, as it's called out to lunch. Yes. And a good lunch <laughs> is involved. Can't wait. Um, it's a slight 70s meets <laughs> Russian babushka vibe yeah. with this menu. Ooh. Okay. Oh, what did you just see? Okay, steak tatar, imperial served with Siberian sturgeon caviar. I really like your style. I mean, it just sounds great, doesn't it, when it says Siberian? It suddenly feels really exotic. <laughs> well, it's a long way. It is a long <laughs> way. It's true. Stinking bishop cheese souffle. So you're going to start with that? Yeah. And then main? And then my main will be... Choices. I'll have uh, salmon poached in white wine. So cheese souffle, yeah. and stinking bishop cheese souffle, and then salmon poached in white yeah. wine. And Jeremiah, I'll, um, I'm going to go old school and have the prawn cocktail to start, and then the chicken Kiev. So that would make me very, <laughs> very, very 70s. happy. Yeah, it would be great. Uh, Excellent. And would you like any sides to do with you all? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah. Um, I will have a mixed salad. Mixed salad. There you go. Thank you very much. Thank you. The description of your late teens and 20s as someone who was sort of around in the 80s a lot. I was at university in the 80s and very many political movements. It, it seems ramshackle and insane and brilliant. Does at it? This. Well, not insane. <laughs> no, you can say that. I, I'm I, interested. I, it, it's uh, very, very political, that everything was political. Yeah. 
Um, and you've already mentioned you saying your sexuality changing. Mm. And I was curious as to whether you were intellectually led in terms of your sexuality, being a lesbian in the 80s, and, or was it genital? Well, genital. As in, <laughs> you know. Genital. Yeah. Were you led by intellect or attraction? <laughs> okay, so at one point in the book, I talk about people loving each other as humans, regardless of mm. gender, as being something very liberating and free. Yeah, yeah. So I do believe that. And I do believe it's probably something that's in all of us, right? But it's not something that we've necessarily want to acknowledge or that we've nurtured or that we've thought about. Um, so me choosing to have to lead that life, I think was possibly a bit of both. You know, but you use the word choice. I, I, I do, yeah. Because people also are very aware, very aware of their sexuality, but mm. actually deny it sure. and, and spend the whole of their lives just not, not, uh, not doing anything about it. And then there are people who are aware of their sexuality and do do something about it. And I was like that. So at the point at which I started to be attracted to women, I was becoming a feminist and I was a very strong feminist in my early 20s in the sense that I was a bit of a born again, you know, just wanted to, you know, angry at men. I was angry at men, you know, and I couldn't countenance the idea of having relationships with men, even though I had had in my in my teens. Were you specifically angry for, at any particular men? Are you saying, was I deep down angry at my father? <laughs> I would like to think that I was slightly more subtle than that. <laughs> But as you raised it? <laughs> I, I don't think I say that in my book. No, you don't. But. Because I don't, want to, I don't want to come across as kind of like trying to psychoanalyze myself. That, that might have been going on a little bit as well, right? Except so, the process of memoir is psychoanalyzing yourself. That is true. It is self-interrogation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise it doesn't work. And not everybody does that, I think. You know, you can write about your life and actually not reveal who you are. Or, or interrogate who you are. Because the, the lines curve. There are things in there that people might find shocking. The description of you turning up to work one day, actively wearing a short skirt to completely put off the male boss so that he just couldn't listen, find the language listen, with which I am to. not alone in doing something like that. But who talks about it? Who talks about it? We don't talk about it. Those are the things that we hide away. I think we talk about this stuff as we get older, don't we? Yeah, there's something liberating about getting into our 50s and 60s. We are now talking about 30 years ago as sure, well. Sure, so sure, it's sure. like there's a lot of distance from it. But yeah, totally I was like that. Why not? No, of course. By any means necessary, right? I was writing a book. <laughs> oh, they did say this might happen. You mentioned <laughs> you. the caviar and that's happened anyway. <laughs> yeah, so we have the Siberian, the Ocetra and the Muski caviar. I understand that you're... Oh. Refrain it from gluten, so I put some gluten free oh. crackers there for you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're oh. Yeah, they thought they'd throw some. Okay. They indicated that it might. Nice. This is cream, is it? Uh, I think that's sour cream, yeah. Oh. How do you eat this? Okay. Just scrape I'll it just... on. Uh, scrape it like pate onto the blinis. <laughs> Winning the Booker does attach value to everything you've written. Uh, the, uh, how many PhD theses are being written about you at the moment? I don't know. I haven't heard about any. Maybe they are. 
I have to say, somebody did write an MA thesis on one of my novels Ooh. back in the day. Um, and I thought that reading that would have been the most brilliantly narcissistic thing I could do, as in I would really enjoy this. I didn't get beyond page one. I was quite disappointed. No, it's tough. I, do, I have had um, people writing essays and so on about my work, and they sometimes send it to me, and I can't read it. I can't engage with an intellectual interpretation, academic interpretation of my work, because that's not the point from which I write. Um, and yeah, I find it very hard, but I just keep them from my archive. Did you have any friends who were writers? Did you have any establishment around you of writers? No, not that, not that stage, no. No, that happened a bit later. I, um, no, I was pretty much on my own. There was one writer, Jacob Ross, who I'd known in the 80s, um, who's still writing books today, and um, I think he was the only one. I was really coming out of the theatre world and wasn't, was no longer really in the arts world anyway. So I Was that the feel... point when you were also doing the job at Bush House, or were you... A... No, that was when I was much younger. Right, okay. Yeah, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't... I wasn't really in the literature world for some of writing that book, at least. Which makes it even more impressive that you... I don't, I don't want to say stuck with it, but you were... Well, it is stuck in sticking it, it, with it. That's what it takes, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you learn, you learn self-discipline, self-motivation, how to keep going, all those things that you need as a writer. And that's what I was learning at that time. It was good. It was good that it took so long to write and that... Even when it was published, nobody paid much attention to it. <laughs> yes, God, God save us from early success. Mm. Um, I kind of mean that, actually. Mm. Um, so do I. Was there a lot of solitude in your life? Were you living alone at that point? Because yeah. you moved so regularly. Mm. In fact, the only time in the book when you describe, and I want to get into it, mm. um, the mental dominatrix, where you seem to live with one person in one place for a, a period of time, I think five years, mm. Mm. was in itself a difficult experience. Mm. So I was, I was actually living, I was living on my own when I wrote Lara. I'd left that, actually I'd left the mental dominatrix behind and uh, was living in this attic flat in Broccoli on a hill with a view over South East London. I would have like £10 from Thursday to Tuesday uh, because I was working part time. And that was that was the period when I was wearing the miniskirt and um, <laughs> not the miniskirt, the short skirt, shortish skirt. And so I was on my own and just struggling through with this book. And um, do you look back on that period fondly? Not really. No. <laughs> not having money is not. Is, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's not good not having money. And I wasn't in a relationship. And. Um, no, I'm, what I miss, what I miss about the past is that that pre-internet, that sense of peace where you weren't on tap all the time. And I also miss just reading any book I wanted to read and nobody was asking me about it. There was no pressure to share what I thought of it. Um, whereas for many years now, I, I read the books of my peers. We can ask I, you questions. Yeah, and I, I teach, so I read to teach. And I also judge prizes. You know, the Women's Prize, that was like, I don't know, I read about 80, 80 novels, right? So reading has become work for me. And I miss those earlier years when I just got into a book and I loved it and that was it. And the book stayed with me, something like The Bone People or The Famished Road. And that was it. It was this private, 
private thing rather than a public thing where I was supposed to have an opinion about it and share that opinion. <laughs> this is all a bit meta, really, because I'm forcing you to share your opinion. So for lunch. Oh, that's all right. Thank Stinky, you. Stinky Bishop cheese souffle. Thank you. Hmm. I don't know why it's called a stinking bishop. Because there's a cheese called a stinking bishop. Oh, is there? Yeah. Thank you. Oh. Um, Thanks. Which I, which I assume is, well, it is sort of reasonably descriptive. But oh. Not necessarily in the bishop bit, but um, the stinking bit. Oh. See when you go in. Well, that's a pretty cheese soup. Does it look good? It does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Souffle is delicious. Oh, lovely. I don't actually cook, really. You did. You did say that you were proud of the fact that you pretty yeah. much failed at domestic science Absolutely, at school. Absolutely, I did. I, I uh, was that because of the gendered thing that girls were made to do domestic science and boys were made to do woodwork. Absolutely, it's disgusting, isn't it? Mm. But also, um, my mother. You know, I saw my mother really working hard at home and always having to prepare. You know, often two meals a day for for her children, if not three, when we were much younger, and. Um, I just don't find cooking that interesting. Does your other half, David, does David cook? Not much either. He eats lots of fruit. Um, His diet is mainly fruit. And he'll have, um, he'll eat um, fresh fruit and then he'll put a tin of tuna on it and and then some cream. (laughs) Hang on, hang on, hang on. We need to unpack this. (laughs) He won't won't be, well, I don't think he'll mind. (laughs) The combination of fresh fruit, tuna and cream. On one plate. Mm. Do you think it might catch on? <laughs> He's getting his protein, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and roughage and, and vitamin C, so Absolutely. it's all there. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah no, He's very happy with it. Um, it, it. We've mentioned the mental dominatrix. I, I was curious yeah. about the language you use there, because generally a dominatrix is someone who is hired in a consensual relationship by someone who is sub. Mm. Um, uh, and you have safe words, the dominatrix is, sorry, I don't want to suggest that I have a massive knowledge of the BDSM yeah, no, community. I'm getting a bit worried here, Jane. There are no wall <laughs> Um But that's, that's sort of what that word is attached to. Mm. Um, you attach it to someone, and I found myself wondering, so was it initially consensual? Yeah, or? it was a loving relationship at the beginning. So I was in a relationship with a woman. I was uh, 25 when I met her. She kind of took over my life and became what we would now call um, coercively controlling. I mean, I don't even know if that was part of the vocabulary then, but it happened over a, over a number of years until I felt trapped in that relationship because this, this person was so dominant and also 20 years older than me. Um, so I was much younger, much greener than this extremely experienced person and I lost myself. I lost myself for five years in this relationship. I literally lost my friends. I mean, they came back because they couldn't be around this person and also... It had become platonic after six months pretty much, hadn't it? Yeah, I know. I know, it's weird, isn't it? It's weird. I mean, it is weird. I know, when I wrote this book, I was like, good. Wendy, what were you doing? Well, that's the question. <laughs> you, you, you look back on this. Did friends try to stage interventions? Because you have a theme, obviously, in Go Woman Other, with yeah, a, a dominating what, oh, character. You noticed. <laughs> well, you see, the funny thing is, you also say, so let's dance around everything. You also object. 
quite a lot when people say, are these characters based on things yeah, in your yeah, life? Yeah. You go, no, well, I'm a fiction writer, I'm making it up. But uh, then you've got a zinger, so... Yeah. No, but the thing is, yeah. the thing is, right, yeah, in Girl, Woman, Other, there is a similar relationship between two women, right? But that is not the relationship I had. It so was... It was inspired by it. But what people will think is, oh yeah, Bernadine had that relationship herself and she's writing about that relationship. No, it was inspired by it, but it's not the same relationship because it's fiction, right? I'm doing all kinds of things. I'm mucking about with it. Um, So, so yeah, so, so that's my... A defence. Well, no, so you don't need a defence. It's your book. You you don't literally don't need to defend <laughs> no, anything. I knew, I knew people would bring that up. You see, I mean, by the same token, very early on in the book, you have Yaz's mum, who, from the perspective of the book, going on to win the Booker, yes, has echoes of you. That's true. So Yaz, Yaz comes of age in at the same time I came of age in the eighties. Countercultural, theatre maker, lesbian. And then at the time that the book's opening, around these times, she is, she's got a show at the National Theatre. And lo and behold, you know, I came from that community, have a very different life to to, to Amma, and lo and behold, I, I broke through with the booker. So, that, so it is, it, it's, life it's fair to say, art. yeah. Well, that, that's the interesting thing, because obviously the book is now one the booker, and you are now that person, but when yeah. you were writing it, you weren't that person. I wasn't that person, so now I need to be really careful about the next novel that I write. Did because you? Because I could be, just to say, I could be creating my future for myself. <sighs> Except that you also talk in Manifesto about a lot of forward projection. Yes. And saying, I am, I am a successful writer, you've got to say it in the present tense. I yeah, think. absolutely. This you... book is amazing. It's amazing. I, I, this book is incredible. I haven't even written it yet. <laughs> so some people will think that's crazy, but actually all I'm doing is I'm conquering the demons, conquering the internal naysayers who will say, oh, you know, well, you write this book and it may be rubbish, but let's give it a go. Instead, I'm saying to myself, it's amazing, even though it's not finished, I'm setting myself up to have a really positive writing experience and to produce something that is as good as it can be. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Salmon poached in white wine. Thank you. You're welcome. Sticking with the 70s. It's a cheeky kid. So Thank you very much. Uh, and I'm sticking my napkin in my front because if, oh, you know, good. you know, <laughs> dribbling garlic butter in all the wrong places um, would be a problem. You've described, talking about seriously about food, you know, investigating, attempting to investigate your father's culture, mm. your Yoruba <laughs> heritage. Um, to the point of attempting to learn the language. Yeah. And you didn't really get beyond counting no. to ten because it's all intonation. It's very hard. And also, they, it was that evening um, class in um, Islington in the early 90s. And I don't think they could find any 
teachers of the language, so that it was almost like they just dragged anybody in off the street and said, you know, teach Yoruba. And so the, the teachers are rubbish. One of the other ways <laughs> to investigate culture has been through, traditionally, has been through food. Um, and you have visited Nigeria, I know. Mm. Did you ever attempt that bit of it as well? Did it just never interest you? As in acquiring the dishes of your father's culture? I enjoy, I enjoy Nigerian food, for sure. Jollof rice, I absolutely love jollof rice. Can't get enough of it. But, um, but I don't, I've never tried to cook it or anything. But then I wouldn't, you know, I'm not interested in cooking it. That's the point, isn't it? Yeah. You're not interested in the, in no. the functionality of that? No, not at all. So food never, uh, this is my own personal obsession, obviously, because I'm a writer of yeah. restaurants on food. Uh, has that ever been a major element of your fiction, of your writing? Yes, I use food to convey character, culture, community, um, sometimes to convey a relationship or a situation. So I use it a lot. So, for example, in Girl, Woman, Other, you've got these 12 characters and you pretty much see what they eat and how and when they eat all separate to each other because they're all very different they're all very sure. sort of individualized so so food functions and i love actually writing about food in my books because it is a kind of shortcut you know it's like describing a place for example so you say i've set um a novel in um i don't know um up north at the turn of the 20th century. And one of the ways in which I can convey that might be through food. I love writing about it a lot more than I enjoy eating it, even though, of course, I like food. Right. But I'm not a foodie. Well, welcome to Out to Lunch. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're not the first. You're not the first to have said something similar no, to that. No, but I do good. enjoy no, it. No, I mean, I, I'm really enjoying this food, but it's not, you know, some people, like, they wake up and they, they plan their meals for the day. Sure. Whereas yeah. I think about food when I'm hungry, you know, and then I like salads. Um, I have to, I don't know if you saw this story, it broke yesterday, which was from a school in South London, it's Ark All Saints Academy in Camberwell, where they have prescribed certain bits of language in the teaching environment. Uh, the following words must not be used at the beginning of sentences. Um, because, the one, uh, like, say, you see, you know, basically. I'm gonna show this to you. And, th and then these expressions, slang and idiom must not be used, which includes, oh my days. <laughs> I love oh my days. I love oh my oh days. Oh my days. Oh my days. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, as I lived in Brixton for 30 years, yeah. I've got a couple of boys when my eldest was eight or nine, and uh, we asked him how school had been. He went, oh my days, it's a white boy. <laughs> it's fantastic. Have a look at this. Oh, this is so the interesting. Yeah. So, um, um, who doesn't? I do that, um, I'm, um, I am um all the time. We all um. There's a phrase in radio which is called de-umming. De which is, <laughs> yeah. you, you go through the, the take, and you take out the ums. Thank God. So I think mm, to, 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 to make her argument was, they are trying to improve yeah, the discourse in class. She said, obviously, there's no prohibition in mm. the playground or whatever. But certain, I just wonder what you thought. I think, I think it's probably a good thing. Do you? Yeah, I think so. Because they need, have, they need to learn how to construct proper sentences. 
And like for one of my books, um, Hello Mum, it's about a 14 year old boy growing up in the state. And I interviewed lots of kids his age, right, for to do research for the book. And I could not believe, and I recorded the interviews, I could not believe how many likes there were. Every other word was like. And then when I put that in the book, because it's written in the first person, um, a couple of my readers said, no, 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 you've got too many likes, that's not realistic. I said, no, but this is less likes than there were. And they said, oh yeah, but you can't put it in the book. So actually, I think what they're trying to do is make the students more articulate and becoming more articulate is a good thing for young people from, especially from working class backgrounds. Is it not in some way trying to get them to comply with a linguistic agenda set by another part of society? Ooh, well, let's, let's just say that... Because this is the way your characters talk. A lot of your characters well, do you know, talk like this. It is an argument I make in the book with, um, in Girl, Woman, Other, with a, um, a character called Carol who grows up in Peckham, Nigerian immigrant working class mm. background, who changes her accent pretty much as soon as she gets to Oxford University because she knows she's not going to fit in there and she doesn't fit in. So one of the ways in which she learns how to fit in is to change her accent. This is something people have been doing probably throughout history changing their accent in order to become, in order to move into another class, in order to improve their lives. And that means moving, I hate to use these kinds of... Um, Pejoratives? Absolutely. <laughs> but moving from working to middle class, you, how do you do that? You change your accent, I changed my accent. Not that I had a really working class accent, but I changed my accent when I was about 14. Did you? Right, and that has, um, uh, work for me um, for, the, for the whole of my life, right? In that I can, I, can, I can negotiate all kinds of social environments and feel that how I speak is not going to be held against me. So that's what these teachers are trying to do. And the likelihood is that the children in this school need to learn how to speak good English and this is one way of, of getting them to do that. Um, and then, you know, code switching, they can go back to street slang or whatever when they're away from school or away from formal environments. Um, Although I do love Oh My Days. Oh My Days. Jeez. Oh my God, wow, that's long. Oh, this slang just keeps evolving. So that's long means that's boring, tough or tedious. I had no idea. Bear. Bear's been around for a while. What's the meaning given there? It means very extremely. Right. And cuss, cuss has been around forever, yeah. and I think that comes from the Caribbean, swear or abuse, cuss. I mean, I use cuss. It was the one at the top, he cut my eye, he, he cut his he eyes. He cut his eyes at me. Yeah, absolutely, cut, that's a Caribbean expression. Yeah. You cut your eyes at someone, you give them a dirty look. It's an interesting subject, isn't it? It's like learning the social codes for success. How do you do that? I'm just fascinated by it. It is fascinating, but it's also telling you well, how the kids are speaking. Yeah. You know, if you don't know, and I don't really know. Because there's a lot of linguist, uh, linguistic experts raging in The Guardian. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, really? yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I've missed this. Okay. Yeah. Um, but what are they saying about these children? The, the society, society isn't going to change, right? There was a period when 
Cockney was fashionable, right, among television presenters. Mockney, right? So people used to dumb down how they spoke. And to a certain extent, we still see a bit of that. For example, some of the younger members of the royal family. You know, they sound nothing like Charles, nothing like the Queen. But in this society, how you speak um, influences how you how you move and negotiate and elevate yourself within it. And you need to be able to conquer standard English. Have there been other times where you talked about when you were 14, changing yeah. the way you spoke? Well, I, Wasn't that when you were- like, you know, I mean, but- <laughs> Yeah, I think you, you know, just- you know, I wasn't like that, but I think I, you described handing out brochures or uh, programs right. in a theatre. And, and the person next to me, another teenager at the youth theatre, we were both ushering. She was saying to people, "Would you like a program?" And I was saying, "Do you want a program?" And I heard the difference, and I thought, "Oh, would you like a program?" Is so much more sophisticated. And so I switched. I started to change how I spoke. So you. you Talk to you talk in the book about coming up with sort of fusion fiction. Yes. What you call fusion yes. fiction, which is a fusion of poetry and prose um, and placement on the. Well, you, maybe you should describe what fusion fiction is rather than me mm. getting it wrong. Well, I think it's my invention. It doesn't seem to have caught on, but there we go. Um, it's um, it is, it is a sort of way of writing fiction that is neither. Not quite poetry, not quite prose. Um, I don't have many full stops, so there are... You don't have any, do you? Do you I do. Few? I have some, not many. At the end of sections, there are full stops. And so the sentences are kind of fused together because of the absence of full stops. And also the, the way the text is patterned on the page is a kind of, I call it a pro-poetic patterning. It's not quite poetry, but it's kind of a very fluid way of presenting text on the page so you don't get like thick chunks of text. And so it allowed me as a writer to sort of be inside my characters and to look at them from the outside, to go from the past and the present, to compress all of those things that, that might be more difficult to do in a novel. So, so to put that another way, so, so I, I kind of create a whole, the character's whole world in about 30 pages. And I think that's possible because of this form that I've used, where I have just been able to condense and compress their stories through the form. We um, sent you uh, a listening copy mm. of my interview with David Hare. Yeah. The, the playwright. Mm. And I have an interesting conversation with him mm. about diversity in writing. Um, I think you, have you heard it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so Hare talks about people being kept in their ethnic boxes, doesn't he? I think he is making the case for diversity, which is great, and mm. that's important, clearly. At this stage, you know, everybody needs to have a chance to, to be writing plays for theatre and so on and publishing books. But he also says that people shouldn't have to write out of their own cultural backgrounds. Yeah. That if they want to write beyond that, then that, that's good too. And I totally agree with him. I, the point I make back to him, because I'm playing devil's advocate, is what if they haven't had the chance to write about their own cultural background yet? Well, that's difficult then, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I, I got this but point. I think absolutely, people will have the do have the chance to do that. Actually. I think what was particular, and the point where we actually he and I quite go at it, is when he's saying, "I believe in the singular voice leading a theatre 
rather than a multitude of voices. And I suggest that a multitude he, of voices is possibly a better well, idea. He was saying, he was talking about how he was championed by Richard Eyre, wasn't mm. he, at the National Theatre? Yeah. And then other, um, I think Peter Hall championed someone else. Anyway, oh, Pinter. Was it Pinter? Yeah. And he was. He and then was, over at the, at the Royal Court, it was Max Stafford Clark with Carol Churchill. Carol Churchill. It's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I hadn't really thought of it actually, that that was, that is how it worked, that that is what happened. I would argue that everybody, you know, we need to have just multiplicity of everything. There is no single writer or voice who defines a generation. That's where I thought you would disagree with yeah, it. Yeah, there isn't, of course it's not. So, so when, when a writer is described as the voice of a generation, it's a ridiculous thing to say, because it's just not possible. You know, we are heterogeneous, aren't we, in this society? We're all very different. Um, and we just need to have lots of different artists practising their craft in lots of different ways. Is there not a risk at the moment that you, as the first... You can see where I'm about to go, black woman to win the Booker, that you become that voice? Yeah, the first black woman to win the Booker and the first black British person to win the Booker. Yeah. I, I bring lots of other writers with me, that's the thing. Send down the lift. Yeah, send down the lift. I definitely do that. So even though I... I'm out there a lot at the moment and I have a lot to say and I have a lot of exposure and it feels that I need to capitalise on this moment and not retreat and disappear from view. Um, I am somebody who stands for my community <coughs> or even my communities. And so, um, and I have been doing this for a very long time. It's just that I have more exposure with it. And that's a good thing. So, so I like to think I'm a force for good out there because it isn't just about me and my career. It's actually about all those other voices who also need to be uplifted in some way. I'm, uh, as we come to the end, I'm going to take you full circle back to your childhood, to the bit in your book which I found the most traumatic in, your, in, in Manifesto. Your father buying two pianos and then burning them for firewood. I thought you were going to talk about the racists smashing our windows in. Um, Do you know, the funny thing is, <laughs> I kind of, that didn't surprise me. No. <laughs> it's kind of a given. You were, a, yeah. a, you know, your father was Nigerian, your mother was yeah. white. It was the 60s you, and It was 70s. the 60s, you're biracial, you're living Real. in Woolwich. Yeah. Racism, people smashing the windows down. That's terrible. Yeah, I know. I kind of expected it. Why did he buy the bloody pianos? So, so the pianos, um, they were fancy pianos with candle. Um, they would have been old pub pianos. That, 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 that's what those were. They tended to be old pub pianos. I play piano, um, which is why it hurt. <laughs> well, you see, so they were never tuned from my recollection, but they came with the house. So the house had once been part of the school. And I think, I don't know who lived in the house. Um, I think maybe nuns or something. I don't know, maybe they used to have a sing-along in the evening or used it to, to sing hymns or whatever. But it was part of the house. And probably by the mid-70s, when we were all becoming teenagers and so on, he thought it was a good idea to take them out into the garden and burn things. But he loved doing that. He just loved burning, chopping trees down and burning them. Um, very much a stash and burn mentality. Um, but we, we would play them as children. But yeah. you know, Frere Jacques, Frere Jacques, one finger. But, but other than that, nobody learned to play the piano. 
So they were redundant. It takes a lot of effort to <laughs> smash up a piano. Oh, I bet he loved it, though. So with that image of a smouldering piano in a back garden in Woolwich... Two. <laughs> two smouldering pianos. <laughs> all that remains is for me to say, Bernadine Everesto, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you very much. It's been total delight. <laughs> what a delight Bernadine was, and so glad we got to put the champagne button to good use. Her memoir is entitled Manifesto on Never Giving Up and is out now. Thank you to the wondrous Bob Bob Rickard for their hospitality. If you want to sit in a restaurant that looks like a Wes Anderson film set, well then this is your place. Check out the backgammon board floor downstairs in the bar, and the food's terrific too. As ever, you would appreciate it if you could share this podcast with everyone you know. Comment, give us five stars. It does help us to make more. The recording and mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Ream with additional editing by Jemima Rathbone. The executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's the brilliant actress Dame Eileen Atkins. Didn't you steal a lift home with Laurence Olivier? Most every night. Every I, night, because even though he wasn't going anywhere near where you yes, lived. Yes, and then he caught me out and it was awful. <laughs> Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.